Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. In this episode, we discuss Canadian public opinion about international development and insights about where and how Canadians engage most with these issues. To discuss this topic, we're joined by David Coletto. He's the CEO of Abacus Data, and it's one of Canada's leading public opinion polling firms. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me, Nick. Well, it's great to have you. I'm glad you could join us. You know, I I know that at Abacus Data, you like to say that you're helping people make the right decisions. And I think at CCIC, when we reached out to you, it was precisely to explore how we could perhaps better engage Canadians and Canadian decision makers on the issues that matter to the international cooperation and humanitarian sector. It's really been a pleasure to reach out to you. And and we first uh, got in touch back in January, and it was about starting to explore what might be some of the ways that we could refine the arguments that we make with the Canadian public around how to support or why they should support international development assistance. There's been a lot of research done out there in the sector that has shown this general support for international development assistance. Uh, there was a survey done by CanWatch, that's the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, last summer that showed that 81% of Canadians support Canada's investments in international assistance. And we are a sector that is actually quite large in this country, and people sometimes don't realize that there's over 2,000 organizations that work in international development in Canada. They employ 14,000 Canadians. They spend and raise over $5 billion a year. But we also know that in the last federal election, one of the major parties, the Conservative leader, specifically threatened to withdraw Canada from the world and, and, and cut Canada's investments in official development assistance. And that was a bit of a, a wake-up call. And I thought that maybe we could start this call, David, you know, maybe talking about that moment. During the election, Andrew Scheer came out with an announcement. He was basically proposing to cut official development assistance by 25%, he said, but the numbers through the PBO were closer to 30%. Do you have any sense of, you know, when you were tracking the election, how, how that announcement, you know, resonated with Canadians? Yeah, and I think, you know, we were doing pretty much a survey every week. And and one of the things we were monitoring through that research was, you know, how were Canadians reacting to a lot of the big promises that the parties were making? Did they, could they recognize who was making those promises? So we asked um, in one of our final surveys, we gave people on our online survey a long list of, of the promises that had been made over the course of the last few weeks. And we scrubbed away who made the promises and whether they were a conservative, a liberal or a new Democrat promise. And one of them was, you know, a promise to reduce, as you said, Canada's foreign aid budget by 25%. And what really stood out to me was first the overall positive reaction that Canadians had with that idea. 63% overall thought it was a good idea. 22% thought it was a bad idea. But more important was it wasn't just conservatives who were attracted to that idea, but we found a majority of liberal voters, almost a majority of new Democrat voters uh, said that they felt it was at least, you know, somewhat of a good idea. They weren't enthusiastic about it, but they didn't reject it outright. But perhaps more interesting was when we asked people, which party do you believe made this promise, apart from the carbon tax repeal, which had been 
you know, a centerpiece of the conservative campaign for a number of months, which most voters were able to identify the conservatives as, as promising to repeal the carbon tax, reducing foreign aid was the second highest most recognized. Now, whether that was because people were more inclined to think that the conservatives were the party that would propose this, or whether it's because it actually broke through, either one of those, I think, is an indication of, depending on your perspective, the both political opportunity that that promise gave the conservatives or the risk for the sector. And to me, that was a really a lightning bolt in how I approached the work we did with, with CCIC and my learning of you know, the dynamics of public opinion when it comes to international development. And, you know, you cited some of the numbers at the start of our chat about the broad support that the public has towards international development and and foreign aid. And on the surface, I think most people would say it's a good thing, right? That Canada is playing an active role in supporting, you know, these really important causes and, and, and making a contribution. But what our research during the election also showed is it's far more nuanced and complicated than that, that when you actually push people to consider priorities and choices, foreign aid, as as I think has always been the case, falls right down to the bottom of the list and becomes a candidate for an enterprising political leader or party to use to, and I think in this case, what the conservatives were doing is to justify some of the, the the spending that they were planning to do during the election, right? To make themselves look more fiscally responsible, uh, to double down on the idea that we should be, you know, supporting local uh, or domestic infrastructure or spending and, and, and pull back on some of the foreign obligations that we have. So it was a really powerful data point that told me they knew the power that it could have the effectiveness. And so I, I think that's why it kind of came out of nowhere because they were looking for not quite a Hail Mary, but something that would get attention and protect their fiscal responsibility side of of their arguments. And this is why I think, you know, the numbers you've run and and your analysis are so important because, you know, it strikes me that from a political strategist perspective, this is the kind of argument that seems to have worked. It's sort of a a really important announcement of all the other things said in the election. It it actually stuck and was well-recognized, which leaves me really with thoughts that it's going to be hard to imagine this argument may not come back again within that party. And we even saw in the last um, few weeks, even in the middle of the COVID response, that Aaron O'Toole, one of the leadership candidates for that party, has again sort of spoken to the need to limit investments on ODA. And so I think this is an important sort of recognition that there is uh, there is an argument out there that, that can be made and does resonate with some that we should cut aid. But you were really doing some polling with us, looking particularly at what are some of the factors that we should be looking at when we make the case for further investments in Canada's ODA. And for our listeners, I think a, a good majority of them know that Canada actually, its performance on ODA compared to other countries is uh, middling to poor, uh, that we actually don't compare well with other OECD countries, that we invest 0.28% of our uh, GDP in official development assistance, which is a far cry from the 0.7%, the longstanding Pearson target. But we also know our sector has been talking about that need to increase investments there for a long time. And so the question is, and we were posing with you, was how can we get to a, a more refined set of asks? And what are some of the factors that influence us as Canadians in analyzing why we would support 
more ODA. And so what are some of the main findings that you found during that? Yeah, so we did the survey in January, near the end of January. So it's important to keep in mind you know, that the world has changed a lot. But we did see in this research glimpses because the COVID outbreak in China had, had already accelerated. There was broad recognition that, that our world perhaps seemed much smaller uh, than we once thought and that something happening in other parts of the world wouldn't come and affect us. And I think that thinking is, is at the core of where I, is how I approach this. And when I look at any public affairs challenge or, or, or question, right? How do we connect with decision makers? How do we compel them and convince them that doing the right thing is both doing the right thing and is politically feasible, right? That is, that is the art of, of, I think, public affairs is connecting the interests of your own sector with their political interests, with the interests of, of the public. And so you have to start with the problems and the issues that the public is concerned about. And so that is where I often lead, you know, those that I work with in starting that. And and what we found in the research was at the time, and I think it's only gotten accelerated and more intense, was there's a broad recognition among Canadians that things around the world weren't headed in the right direction, right? 60% said that the world was off on the wrong track. And when we asked them why, you know, they, at the time they pointed to things like climate change, uh, conflict, inequality, and, and poverty, you know, we started seeing the bubblings up of, pan, you know, it wasn't at the time a pandemic, but, you know, epidemics and, and the spread of infectious disease. But there was a broad understanding already that, you know, the world was at, at a fragile point and people were not quite optimistic that, that things were headed in the right direction. And so the next step in that was us understanding to what extent are Canadians concerned with a number of issues. And what we found was a majority of the country, and it crossed political spectrum, across generation, across region, were particularly engaged with five. Climate change, terrorism and extremism, war, poverty, and the spread of disease. There was less concern, at least at an intense level, around religious freedom, gender inequality, cyber warfare. Although migration of refugees was something that and we can talk more about was particularly concerning for those more on the, on the right of the political spectrum. But the starting point was there's broad recognition that these problems exist. And so then the next step in our, in our research was to understand whether Canadians could connect official development assistance, international cooperation, Canada's role in solving these to these problems themselves. And that's one of the things we learned was People don't instinctively believe that ODA um, can help solve these problems necessarily or has to an extent. And I think it confirmed what many in the sector and those that work with the sector understood is that by focusing so intently on the level of investment, right, that 0.7% number, that you've often lost sight of the storytelling and the impact that you have. And that's not to say that everyone listening to this, working for different organizations, don't talk about the impact you're having and and the positive change you're making. But it's that it often doesn't connect easily or clearly with the public. And so that was the first thing we learned, that if you connect the dots with people, if you show them the, the problem and you actually give them insight into how... ODA and, and, and cooperation and the role that the, our government can play in helping those in other parts of the world, you can start to build support. 
The second thing we learned was that the strategic arguments, right, that it is in our best interest, not just out of a moral responsibility because we are a wealthier nation, that we should be helping others who need help, but that there's strategic implications also worked quite well across the political spectrum. So if you are more a progressive, center-left oriented Canadian, then you are already more open to arguments in favor of increasing ODA spending and, and, and spending more, but you were also much more likely to say, I like arguments that center around economic development, that we're creating trading opportunities for us long-term, that we're preventing you know, mass migration, we're allowing people to stay in their homes, stay in their communities, and not risk the disruption, both politically, economically, socially, that the mass migration that we've seen in Europe, for example, has caused. The same arguments worked quite well, even among what I would call reluctant conservatives, right? That they, they could start to see the connection between the two. Now, you know, there's limits to what a survey can do to understand the qualitative nature of, of these arguments, but there's no doubt that our research did identify. If you connect the dots, you make clear claims that demonstrate impact, uh, people start to understand it. And so I think that that was, for me, the the second lesson is that not only do you have to tell your story about your impact, but you have to bring it home and show that an investment overseas, an investment in a place I don't really understand, I don't really empathize with because I don't really know what it's like to live in Syria or in a displaced persons camp in, in Turkey, um, or you know someone who's not anywhere near as well off as I am in sub-Saharan Africa, but I can understand that if I improve their lives, if I give them a chance at success, that that also might create opportunities for my own country and my, and, and my neighbors and myself. And that, I think there's always been an understanding, but our research confirmed that. And you know, David, I think that's one of the most difficult things for our sector to recognize that you know, we've been used to talking about the principles and the values that we uphold, the people that we're trying to help. But what you found is basically that the arguments really do work. They do resonate with people as long as we go and get them, that we get them from their point of departure. And then that we actually speak to not just their emotions and their principles, but actually to the strategic value, their own self-interest. And I think that's a really hard lesson for our sector. But it really did strike me in the research that actually some of these really did move opinion. Like you were able to change people's opinions, and this was in a, a constrained, uh, you know, opinion polling context. And so, what are some of the arguments that actually did move people a little bit? Well, at the time, and I think again, it would be even more effective today. And we just need to sort of put an asterisk on it. This notion that it helps prevent the spread of infectious disease was the strongest tested argument. And I think it demonstrates the importance of something being front and center for us to, to really understand and see the connection that worked. And so I think there's a lesson there. And I think it'd be even stronger today if we asked the same questions. But again, I think you're right. There's a, sometimes it seems insensitive to talk about efficiency, but the efficiency argument that, for example, it costs less to save lives than kill people and reduces the need for military or security services. There was a, a real recognition that that was an excellent reason to increase ODA spending, right? Improving economic conditions and infrastructure in other countries prevents mass migration. A third of 
Canadian said that's an excellent reason, not just a good reason. It's an excellent reason to increase ODA, help develop countries that Canada will one day trade with. I loved, you know, in our preparation for this, we use this example in our survey. You, you use the example of South Korea, right? That within many Canadians' lifetimes, older Canadians' lifetimes, South Korea went from a country we had just helped, you know, support during a war, a civil war, and then a generation later, we now consume so much of their products and we've got a free trade agreement with them. And they're now a well-developed country. That's a great example that I don't think people ever stop to think about. But when you put it in that context, it gives them hope, right? That the investment that they feel they're making through their tax dollars is going to make a difference and is in the long run actually going to be an investment as opposed to, as opposed to just charity, which I think is an important framing, right? Um, that there's a, a strategic, both security and economic argument for this. Those are the ones that, that work the best. I think you're, we're on to something here. And it's a real challenge, though, about how as a sector we become more nimble and able to do that, even as we want to tell the good stories of the change that we're making around the world. And I think there's a challenge to all of us to figure out uh, what that means. You mentioned at the top, you know, the, the idea that your sector recognizes that Canada doesn't actually perform that well in terms of our investment. We asked about that in the survey, because I think one of the frustrations is that, you know, Canadians actually perceive Canada to be doing more than it actually is. In our survey, we looked at it a slightly different way, but it, it confirmed that, right? That at the very least, most Canadians think Canada does as well as its peers on spending. But really interestingly, very few want Canada to be a world leader. And so that, I think, shows the important balance and the real need to think about the language we use, that, that while Canadians want to be aspirational, they want to be contributing as much as our peers, that there is hesitation for us to aspire to be the best on something like this. And that was, I think, a really interesting finding that while we're thinking we're doing pretty well, we also have to be uh, mindful in, in how uh, aspirational we actually want to be and that Canadians just want us to do our part. And I think they'd be, be quite disappointed to learn we, we really aren't. Yeah. And I think that's clearly one of the challenges we have. And it's not the first time we find out Canadians uh, significantly overestimate how much we actually uh, provide as a country compared to what we do. But it's a very difficult point of departure for us to argue for more when Canadians already think we do more. And it also, you know, speaks to the fact that we often have had the language of leadership in our advocacy around these topics, that Canada should lead on X, Y, and Z, when what you're saying is that perhaps that's not what Canadians want us to do. Maybe we've talked about leadership so much, they already think we lead. Um, and in fact, maybe there's some resetting necessary around an understanding of what Canada's relative contribution actually is, and maybe a resetting of the narrative around the importance of doing at least as much as our peers, of not being a laggard. And so I think there's some real challenge, uh, again, to, to the language that our sector uses uh, with respect to that. Did you find anything about uh, in here about the use of the 0.7% you know, percent? You know, is, is that something that you think we should continue to use as a sector? I don't. I, I think it, it's, it's incredibly complicated and confusing. One of the things we learned was not only do people overestimate how much we spend, they, there's no real sense or consensus on anything. And we, we tried multiple ways of assessing how much Canadians think we spend on, on ODA. And there was really no 
metric or way of doing it that people could actually understand. So I think my view is the best approach is, is framing ODA more as a tool that can solve specific issues and maybe as a sector use the 0.7 as a goal, but don't talk about it uh, as a goal. That instead the goals are, you know, how can Canada help um, improve education for women and girls in, in certain parts of the world? How can we help mitigate for the effects of climate change? How now can we not only stop the spread of COVID, but help countries that will have to be rebuilt even more so that the tail of this crisis doesn't extend for years to come as inequality and, and slow economic growth is, is the eventual outcome. And then internally add up to hopefully 0.7, but don't use that as the metric that you judge because ultimately I think people won't understand what that means. And if anything, 0.7, 1%, nobody even knows what GDP means. And nobody knows really what that number stands for. What I've learned in all my years of doing public opinion research, um, and I've spent a fair bit of time just on a different subject the last few years exploring climate change as an example and trying to understand, you know, why don't people understand even the basis of what a carbon tax does? It's because at their core, people don't even really understand what causes climate change. They, they get conceptually what causes it. But when you ask people, how do you solve for it? They throw out solutions that will get us nowhere near dealing with the issue. And so complexity is really the vice of persuasion. And so I think, you know, moving away from this 0.7 as a communications tool is really important. I don't think, you know, setting it as a goal for your sector is still important, but don't use it as a as the marker by which you, you judge success or not. And instead aim for getting to 0.7 through individual type problem solving that you can collectively speak to and connect dots for, for people. Yeah. I mean, the research you've shared, uh, David, and conducted for us, um, first of all, for listeners is available in part on our website at ccic.ca. There's a, there's a memo there that you shared with us outlining a lot of these findings, but it really does clearly tell us that we need to be more sophisticated about presenting ODA as a tool to solve problems, that talking about it in of itself is not enough, that there's too much complexity in a lot of the terminology that we use, and even our target that we've had for, for decades, that itself is just so complicated and it's hard to make the case. But it, it's, it's also fascinating to me you know, what did come out of this, because interestingly, the arguments that do help to frame ODA is a tool that you trialed with participants in the, in the polling, some of them actually spoke to one that we're living right now and today. And so the, the COVID crisis has gotten so much worse since we did the polling in January, but already in January, it was in the news and people were signaling that this was really a case that it made the strong case for us to invest in global public health systems, et cetera, to sort of protect Canadian interests. And I wonder, you've been tracking COVID's impact. So have we closely as a sector and the impacts are tremendous from job losses to impact on programs and, and beyond, but it's also brought the world to Canada's doorstep. It has really connected the global to the local. There is no response to a global pandemic that can't be global in nature in and of itself. And so a lot are starting to ask questions about, well, isn't this actually a natural sort of uh, 
strengthening of uh, the the cases for uh, Canada's continued investment in in global health systems and international development assistance, that the world will be more vulnerable than ever, that protecting Canada's interests involves responding to these crises internationally. So is there anything that you've been tracking since the polling, maybe reflecting the polling we did together, but in your work around COVID um, that you might want to reflect on? Well, I think the first thing is, in January, 55% of Canadians said they were extremely or very concerned about the spread of infectious disease. That was before really any cases you know, had, had emerged in North America or that we were aware of. So it's still something that was happening somewhere else, but the level of risk was, was, was quite high. Today, you know, we've been doing uh, national surveys here in Canada. Other, other firms have done the same. There's no doubt that the country's engaged on this issue. And to me, when I think about the implications of this, both you know, the short-term implications we're going to have to get through and they're going to be difficult and they're going to be painful. But the medium to long-term implications, I think, are going to be really fascinating. And I'm not sure where we land, but I, I do think that the public is more than ever before, particularly Canadians, because in a way, we've, even though we're, we're close to the United States and 9-11, for example, hit a little too close to home um, in terms of how, how vulnerable we could be to things that were that were sort of caused elsewhere but came came here. Uh, this is something that's hit us and it didn't start here. So it's 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 made our world even smaller. And so I think about how we reframe the role of the state, the role of of governments, the importance of international cooperation and us working together, irregardless of of how you know President Trump views these issues, Canadians almost react in the complete opposite direction as what the U.S. president does. And so I think there's going to be an appetite, not just an appetite, but perhaps a desire to see us do more to prevent these things from coming to Canada in the first place. And so it creates that space to have more of these conversations we just talked about, Nick, where you're making the link between these issues that might seem foreign to us today, but in a very short period of time can, can fundamentally change our lives. And so I do think, you know, COVID, as, as much as it's going, it is and causing great, you know, hardship for a lot of people and great anxiety, it is an opportunity at some point, I don't think quite yet, but that opportunity is coming in which we, I think, can have a conversation with Canadians that will be in a very different headspace than they were even two months ago when we did this survey. Yeah, thanks for that, David. I mean, we're definitely in in uncharted waters. I think we all know that. And uh, indeed, I, I like your your framing of the fact that the COVID crisis is presenting a reset potentially on, on the dialogue with respect to all of the major issues of our day. And that's uh, no less true in international development and cooperation. But it feels like all of the research we've been talking about here is a challenge to our sector to look at how it can reset its engagement. And, you know, we we have a lot more work to do to figure out how to finesse that. I think there's how we present ourselves as a sector, but there's also how individual organizations can process some of this information to position themselves as well. And, you know, we... We know that other federal elections will come one day. There may be a need for us to defend uh, investments in ODA again, and, and organizations need to be thinking about what are the ways that they could be doing that. But it does seem that in the short term, 
COVID is really uh, one of the important ways that we can be engaging Canadians. Uh, certainly, it's an assessment we've been making at, at CCIC and with our partners that, I mean, this is just so present. It's in our daily lives. It's in our lives with our families. It's in, in our self-confinement, just as it is a part of a big global issue. And, and interestingly, and really important to underline to the stage is the peaks have all been in Western countries for the most part or more developed countries. The, it's only beginning to appear in some of the world's most vulnerable places. And when it really does get uh, severe in those places, uh, you know, the dialogue may shift. So, you know, a lot of insights in this. I'm really grateful for the conversations we have had, David. I look forward to work that we'll continue to potentially do together. I also want to invite our listeners to go and check out Abacus Data's website at abacusdata.ca. You have uh, some great content there. Uh, great thought-provoking things, and, and not least of which is coverage and content with respect to the COVID crisis. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Development Unplugged, a podcast produced by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. <laughs>